0: You're listening to Think, Think, Thought. A podcast about building thinking classrooms and
1: teaching math. Welcome back, everyone. Kyle here. I'm joined again with Megan.
0: Hey, everybody.
1: Uh, really excited to have you back as we're diving into Chapter 6 of Peter Lilidal's Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics. Chapter 6 turns out to be all about when, where, and how tasks are given In thinking classrooms. And there's a lot to unpack in this chapter, but can you give us a quick overview of what we're looking at here, Megan? Absolutely. So,
0: as everyone would know, the very first chapter of this book is all about the types of tasks we give. But then it turns out that even the best tasks, as Peter lays out in his introduction, like the Lewis Carroll with the rats and the cats and the cheese and the something, even those best tasks, can go a little awry. So this chapter kind of gets into these subtle um, practices for when, where, and how tasks are um, given, which actually turns out to be really beneficial and just as important as the task itself. So like, what were your kind of big like takeaways from this?
1: Yeah. So I started to think back and, you know, Peter lays this out too, about how we tend to give tasks in a typical math classroom. So We either project it or write it on the board. We either give it our handout, maybe something we've made or found, or we assign it from our textbooks or the workbooks that come alongside our textbooks. And I think, unsurprisingly to you and I, in the roles we work in, that those textbook workbooks, those kind of ones generate the least amount of thinking. And I think that's because kids have become so conditioned that this is the time, this is the place when I'm going to mimic exactly what my teacher just showed me. They just showed me all these steps. Now I'm going to show them that I listened to those steps and that I can do these steps exactly as they as they shown. So so I think that these these three different ways that we can give tasks to students end up resulting in the lowest levels of thinking in the research that they found, which I thought was really interesting and it's something I think I've always felt as a math teacher, mm-hmm. but until yeah. thinking classrooms I didn't really have a different way to do it. So I'm really happy that Peters shared that with us. Um he goes into the when, the where, and the how tasks are given let's start with when um what was your takeaway when we were talking about the when we should be giving tasks Megan
0: so it turns out in the when it is the most important to just give this task in the first five minutes of class because the research kept on showing that the longer that people waited to give the task the lower potential for learning was kind of available and I thought it was like interesting because there was a quote he had, in page 101 that said, if a lesson begins with a low energy state of passively receiving knowledge in the form of taking notes, this is much harder to then raise the energy level and get them to, to start thinking. So I guess our suggestions would be, even if you're like, I want to try this whole thinking classrooms thing, but I want to do it at the end of a class, maybe start to take it From the beginning of class, and then maybe do more of your traditional mathematics classroom stuff at the end. Was there any big takeaways for the one for you?
1: Yeah. And speaking to what you just talked about with the energy just starts tanking after that five minutes, he's got a beautiful, very simple graph on page 102 that shows us thinking versus time and all this, how how things start to drop. So those first three to five minutes is what he's talking about. And you know, I think of a lot of Typical classrooms, maybe my old classroom, our class by taking up the homework, which we'll talk about in another chapter altogether. But kids were sitting and they were listening to me go through something that they've already done. It wasn't a great way to get things started and it was not engaging. And they slipped in that passive state. And then it was really hard once we're done going through the homework from the day before to get them thinking about what I wanted them doing that day. And then it was not enough time to do the homework. So they'd go home and do it. And it's just a cycle happening over and over and over. Whereas this really shifts things to like, okay, we're in the room. We got three or five minutes and then we're off to the races. Um, I appreciate that he talks about that. It's not like when the bell rings, you got five minutes. Start the clock. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a little start bit of, the there's a little bit of leeway in there, isn't it?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. For instance, for you and I who like we come into different people's classrooms and that's kind of the start of the M class or maybe run and grab some water quick. Or you could be like, okay, today like math is going to start. Especially for these teachers who teach the same students all day. It's like you don't have to do a thinking class at 9.05 in order to get them to think. Like maybe do it uh, right after recess. But the part that I thought was really like interesting was that the longer you wait, the longer the teacher is more likely to be unnecessarily helpful yeah. to the kids, yeah. Which is
1: weird. I didn't think that's so... It's just built into us as teachers, right? Like it's so ingrained into us. There's a quote, um, I lost my quote sheet here, but where he he talks about how if we keep talking, the longer we talk, the more likely we're going to slip up as much as we don't want to and give away the thing that it would be so much better if they discovered it themselves rather than us giving it to them. So that's another reason, you know, the clock's ticking and it, it puts the pressure on us to get out of the way because the thing that he doesn't really talk about in the book that I recall But like after those five minutes, you give the task, you get the cards out. The kids are off to their groups. Like you have five minutes and you should stand back. Let the kids get started. Get out of the way. Let them breathe. breathe. Don't get in there. And it's so hard not to. It's like wine, right? Let it breathe. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. Like a fine wine. I like that. Um, But, you know, it's it's good to wait those three to five minutes or give yourself three to five minutes to get started. But it turns out it also matters where we give the task. Yeah,
0: for sure. Um, And so really,
1: that's just more of a you should give
0: the task standing with the students kind of loosely huddled around you. Now, this I've always found interesting because my classroom, the class that I actually do, do teach, which is my four or five math class, man, that class, I got 31 kids in there like it's hard to loosely huddle anywhere like we can't be anywhere like that's like loosely huddled. However, I do think though in my kind of small space, it is possible and the more you do it the the easier it becomes, right? But and I do think that the main part is more for just the standing, right?
1: Yeah, getting the kids off their their bum's, standing on their feet, that shifts them immediately, disrupts that norm of I'm going to sit, I'm going to listen. It shifts them into some sort of active state where they may be listening in a different way or they, they know something's going to be happening here just changes their mental state and i felt that participating mm-hmm. before and it turns out too that you know you don't want to necessarily just get everyone to stand up and stand beside their desk like like you said we want to get them loosely clustered moving around it's going to be a little bit of that chaotic looking piece that we talked about in previous chapters but but also connecting to a previous chapter we don't want to necessarily do this right at the front of the room every yeah. single time i think it's important that Depending on your space, you might only have one spot where you can do this from. But as much as you can, vary that place that you're going to deliver the task, right? Maybe it's on the left side of the room one day, and then you go to the right side the next day. Maybe you give yourself a little schedule so you keep yourself honest on that. But at the end of the day, you want to vary it up as much as you kind of can.
0: Yes. And I think that the more we do this podcast, the more I am realizing that it's not even that all of these practices promote thinking. It's just... Thinking classrooms is all about just avoiding practices that trigger mimicking and non-thinking. It's less about the thinking and more about just landmines of non-thinking behaviors.
1: It's an interesting way to look at it. So instead of focusing on getting them to think, we just focus on not getting them to not think. Coin term. I- You're us for that one. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about when, we talked about where, you know, the third piece, which is really key here, is the how. So how do we... How do we give tasks in a way that's going to lead to this thinking we're talking about?
0: Yeah, well, I would say traditionally there are a few different ways that have been given out, which is you put the task projected onto your screen from a projector, or you give a worksheet or a handout, or you write it on a whiteboard. And a surprise, surprise, not surprise, None of those are the best ways to get kids to think once again, because they're just kind of triggering those mimicking behaviors. So you should actually do it verbally, which I always find people, people are not hung up on it, but like this, this one is a surprising one for people to get on board with.
1: Would you agree? I would. And I think this is the one we get some pushback on from teachers because other professional development we've been through where we talk about the different types of learners. We got auditory learners, visual learners, all these different types of learners Um, which we won't get into that research, which I think has been kind of debunked a little bit now, but we give it orally, give it visually, give it on paper. Every kid gets option. So whichever type of learner they are, they can access the problem. And that's a a very different way of approaching it. And this is very counter to that. But I think what's really interesting is their research showed that no matter what, and no matter who is in the room, um, giving it verbally led to more thinking, which is really exciting but sometimes you need to give your students some specific information or diagrams. How do you handle that? Because I can't speak a triangle out to my student.
0: <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> three vertices, three sides, all straight lines, done. No. No. Um, yeah, well, I think that, and once again, this is in the book, I think it's on page 106, We said. I think that the biggest part is that within those five minutes, you need to give them something, whether this is a non-example or some sort of, leading into it where the students have some semblance of what is going on. So for instance if I was giving a task about like different shapes I might want to draw the shapes and you want to give the students enough so that if somebody in the room who was there could look at the board they would know what to do but somebody who just walked in wouldn't know what to do with that information. So you want to give them enough but it but this should also feel like a um, conversation because I think the the problem with putting things written down is that that's great if it's really like simple things. So like today we are going to talk about rotations. That's fine. But I think we want to get students to be doing some really complex problems. And that's when on paper is really not great. Right. And so if we can give them a little bit like the tax man, draw the envelopes. Sure. That's fine. But we don't want to give them too much. Because then it'll, it will trigger that mimicking behavior. What, what have you found that works
1: really well? Yeah, and I think, you know, building with that. So, yeah, if any diagrams, sketch it out quick or, you know, depending on the complexity, depending on what we're dealing with, even if printed out and taped to where the, the station, the VNPS, where they're going to be working, that's fine. I know some teachers that will do that, they laminate it even so kids can draw on it depending on what the task is, which isn't, it, it's a great idea. Um, the other thing that I kind of learned trial and error wise is don't just read a task out verbatim. That's not going to be a great time for anyone. They know you're just replicating those other bad ways verbally, like add a spin to it, make it a bit of a conversation, build in some storytelling, make it a, a game you're going to be playing, they're, they're just a different way, make it more more closely aligned to what a normal conversation would look like. And this takes a little bit of practice for sure. Um, But maybe we could share an example of maybe how we've done this. Do you want to share an example of a problem that you've storified and made it an interesting task for your students just in the way that you delivered it to them?
0: Yeah, I guess the one task that I made for the book was called a shape race. And it is a lovely task. And the whole idea is that, oh, circle, square and triangle are coming to have a race today. And the kids are like, really? And it's like, okay, so let's say square wins. Who could have gotten second? And then they'll say triangle. And I'm like, okay, and then who got third? And then they will go circle. And so then we kind of give them one of the options for how the race could end. But then the question becomes, okay, well, then what are all the ways the race could end? And, and it's funny because I've done this in a couple kindergarten classrooms. And a friend of mine from, from BC just used it with another kindergarten class. And once they get to that, they're like, oh my gosh, like I'm star just came and he wants to race now too. And But I could never do this with my kindergartners on paper. Like there's just no way. And the engagement and the creativity just goes sky high. But also that is kindergartners starting on permutations, in case you're wondering, (laughs) is the basis of that knowledge, which is very cool to see that kind of thing happen. All because of a great story, verbally told.
1: Yeah, and I think back to the task that you and I did with a bunch of teachers when we were traveling to Toronto. Uh, was that a month or two ago, where we were presenting at the OAME, the Ontario Math Teachers Conference, and we did a thinking task with the teachers in the room, and it was a lot of fun. And we did this one where I came in early to Toronto, and then I spent the day doing a bunch of things, and you showed up later, and you said, "Hey, Kyle, it looks like you spent a lot of money." I know you got a family at home here. I'm going to double up. How much money do you got? I'm going to double it. And then we kind of kept going through the task and I felt just a so bad, I was like, oh, I can't just let her give me money like that. So I asked you, how much money do you have? And then I doubled you back up. And then we were thinking and we compared and we said, Hey, turns out we have the same amount of money. Weird, right? <laughs> what did we, what did we both start out with? Grab a card, go. That was it. And then the other piece, and you just mentioned it without mentioning it is we built in a great extension through this, through a model that we like to call the Oops, I Forgot, that we've heard our friend up in Saskatoon at Banting mention, me you turned it into a routine. But it was, oh, actually, I forgot. Peter was also with us, and then he doubled us up. and we I kind forgot of to tell you. And you just did that with the star joining your race, right? It's a good way to keep it going. Which is more
0: natural, too. Yes. It's not like, here is the next extension. Oh, I forgot to tell you, and the kids are engaged.
1: Yeah, and the first time you're going to get like frustrated kids, but then eventually it turns into eye rolls, and they know exactly what's going on, and it's totally fine. So let's maybe recap the big ideas of this chapter: is that the the how, the when, the where. So we always want to give these verbally. We want to give it within the first three to five minutes, and we want to do it standing, randomly, kind of around your room, defronted. That would be the ideal situation to give it, give a task, and that makes a lot of sense to me because I think about when I. I'm working with students in my old classrooms. I'd give them a problem set or they'd be working on a test and they'd say like, I don't know what to do with this problem. So like, I would just read it to them verbally. Like we would take the text and make it verbal. And then sometimes that was all it took for them to realize, oh, I now I know what's going on because they heard it. There's something maybe different going on in our brains. I'm not going to pretend to understand the neuroscience, but I think there's something there that really builds on it. And we've talked about this a lot. The text itself can be a barrier, can't it?
0: Oh, yeah, one 100%. And especially for these EAL learners. And like I said, a lot of kids need the um, visuals, but I don't know if if kids need textuals or visuals. I think they need visuals more than text because I just think it is a barrier. And I teach a lot of students who are English language learners and people say, oh, well, they sh- Well, we shouldn't be talking because we need to give them text. Well, they can't read text any better than they can talk to to other students. But if we talk, I can gesture and I can point and we can have some sort of like movement. So it is a little bit more than just that, right? But unfortunately, even if we give this great task, there's going to be kids who miss out on what we've said, right?
1: Yeah, we know that kids are going to be tuning in and out. I mean, we've all taught children this is normal. I've been that kid. I've been that person in a PD workshop, but what I really like that Peter addresses, and we've played with this idea a little bit, is this idea of knowledge mobility, which I think we'll talk more about in a later chapter, but that their research found that as long as one in five kids in your room, 20% of your kids catch the question, know what's going on, you're good to go because knowledge mobility, that idea of kids talking to each other, the group beside them, looking around the room, wandering around to to get a little hint from each other, that's going to take care of the rest. So worst case scenario, you only got a fifth of your kids picking up what's going on. You're in good shape. But there are scenarios where the students, you know, they hear something different than what you said, or they interpret Mm -hmm. it different, or maybe my delivery wasn't perfect. So what do we do when they maybe misunderstand the question?
0: Well... I think it depends on on how big of a misunderstanding is it, right? Because I think that sometimes you maybe can correct them if it's a very slight thing, like maybe they wrote down the wrong number. Like I've had students do that because just like maybe you don't deliver the task great. My writing is atrocious. <laughs> and my 8s look like S's and my 4s look like 9s all the time. So So that could be a um, easy course correction or the other thing too is that just have them look at some other board and be like that's weird because they're doing this and you're doing this. Hmm, I wonder what's going on and then maybe like you know leading them to figure that out. But I also find that it's really interesting because because you're not giving them a text they listen more because they're like there's nothing else to lean back on. I was giving them notes the other day and, and I gave them or I I wasn't giving them notes. I was allowing them to make notes to their future forgetful selves. And I gave them just verbally. And I, and I actually felt bad because I said, this is like a nothing piece of paper. There's nothing on this piece of paper. This is going to bomb so bad. But whatever. I said, hey, write this. And they wrote like mad. The next day, actually just just yesterday, I gave it to them with some text on it. But I still told them about the text. But I could see the kids weren't listening to me because they had the text. And they thought, oh, I'm just going to have the text. And that's like my safety net. But then they all came up to me anyways. Because they're like, what does this mean? I'm like, what? But I gave you nothing like a week ago.
1: <laughs>
0: so it's a weird safety blanket that doesn't actually work.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. Um, the other thing, just circling back, if they misunderstand the question, I've seen instances where it's not that big of a deal. Like maybe they wrote down 15 as in 1-5 instead of fifty-five yeah. zero, And... That's okay, because they're still doing the learning we want. And maybe they're going to realize something's a little off. And I've seen Peter do this in workshops where a group is misunderstood. They went down a different path. He's like, hey, take a lap. Go look around the room. Just see if you can get any hints. And in doing so, they realize, oh, man, we're doing the wrong question. And then he didn't have to tell them. There didn't have to be any of that conflict. Yeah. No one had to be upset because they came to a realization themselves, which I think is really important. Just before we wrap up here, one of the questions I often get, um, and I'm not sure if Peter addresses it in the book directly, but you know, it's something that comes up after teachers have been playing with thinking classrooms, is this idea of, okay, do I give out the cards? Do I make my random groups before I give the task or after I give the task? Or do I give it as they enter the room? Or when do I give the cards so that it aligns with these best practices in delivering the task? What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, my general belief is that it should always happen right after the task is done. I should stop talking and then the cards should be given out milliseconds after that, mostly just because and like I've seen it many different ways, but if kids have the cards too long, we've seen this, they'll swap, they will they'll like go through a million different emotions because they found out they are in a group with their frenemy from two weeks ago, right? Like They're just, but many different things but number one, I don't think they'll be listening to the task because, and We've talked about this before with the random groups. The beautiful part about the cards is that the kids don't meet their group until they go to the boards. If you give them those cards early, they're searching for their group and they're going to be standing with their group, whether they are happy about it or not, because they will have found them and then you'll start the task and then it's just a lot of things. Yeah,
1: yeah. my my recommendation is always after the task as well. I know it might seem simpler and maybe a better use of time to just give them a card while they're filing in. And that is great if you maybe can know your kids are... Not going to trade it, and if you know they are not going to be worried about it during. But I haven't inc- encountered a class where that's been the case. So my recommendation is just give them out after, and then it also gives you a bit of flow in the lesson. And if you do that, that just becomes a routine, the procedure that they're used to. It just becomes a way that we do things. Um, on that note, I think that's kind of a good place for us to wrap up for this chapter, Chapter Six. This one's a really important one. This one takes a lot of practice. There's a lot to build in. One of the things that we're continuing to work on is this idea of turning tasks into stories. This is by no means something I'm finding easy as someone who struggles with storytelling on a good day. You know, we were talking earlier and you reminded me that one of the best ways to get better at telling stories is to tell stories. Yeah. Right. We know this
0: just chat it up tell all the stories
1: yeah so so we challenge you to try that we're continuing to work on that we'll continue to share good examples through our social media when we can when we're really looking forward to our next conversation which ends up probably being one of the more controversial ones that we have when we talk to yes after seven's getting into homework
0: dun dun dun
1: How do we deal with homework? Because for a lot of the things we just talked about, homework maybe doesn't sound like the best practice to get kids thinking. Thankfully, Peter's thought about that and we'll get into that next chapter. So hopefully you'll join us then. And we look forward to hearing from you. If you're interested in reaching out to us on Twitter or email, whatever the case is, we're always happy to chat.
0: All right. See you guys. Thanks for tuning in to Think, Thank, Thumb.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode.
0: And as always, keep thinking. Keep
1: thinking and keep thunking.